Sunder, Eric, both, thank you for uh, spending the time to join us. The day after the government published its immigration plans, um, to those people who were saying what people wanted was control, not necessarily a drop in the numbers. We, we had someone from Vote Leave on the programme last night saying uh, that all they wanted was control. We had Nigel Farage saying, no, they wanted numbers down. We, we, who's right? And does it look like this policy will do the, what they hope it'll do? Different levers wanted different things. And so does control mean reduce? For Boris Johnson's view is that control is what mattered. Those people who want reductions in immigration are selective reducers. They don't want to reduce students. They don't want to reduce high-skilled immigration. They don't want to reduce scientists. They want to have more immigration of the type that the Prime Minister is letting in. Some people then say, but the numbers really need to fall. And other people are saying, if I've controlled the flows I want. That's what I was doing. So we've got, we've got a much more granular immigration debate, which comes down to the politics of low-skilled and semi-skilled immigration from the EU. There's actually a big consensus across parties now, with the government having dropped the net migration target, that student and skilled migration aren't what we're debating. That's where the public always were. So I think Boris Johnson has shifted in the direction of the public. There's a bridging agenda there. Probably half of the Leave vote felt very strongly that they wanted big reductions in numbers. Other bits of the Leave vote thought that it was the pace of low-skilled and semi-skilled immigration they were worried about. Eric, do you think this does the trick politically from serving the voters that helped Boris Johnson win the referendum and win the general election? Um, well, I don't think it is uh, about control only. Um, actually, I think if you look, what I think has happened is you've got uh, a liberalization of attitudes within a part of the British electorate that voted Remain or that voted for the Labour Party or Liberal Democrats, but you haven't seen that liberalization in the part of the electorate that voted for Johnson, that voted for Brexit, for example. This is the kind of polarization, party polarization of immigration attitudes we see in the United States and Canada, for example. I think something similar is occurring in Britain. If you compare 2010 and 2019, from what I've seen, the gap between Labour and Conservative voters on the question of whether immigration should be reduced has doubled in size. Um, so I think those voters for Johnson and for Brexit do want a reduction. Um, and I don't think that question is going to go away. But what I would say is that we're in an unusual moment now because Brexit and the economic future of Britain and the political future of Britain are what people are talking about. And so quite naturally, the immigration issue has dropped down the agenda. Um, the question really to ask is in perhaps a year's time when, if Brexit is a success economically, and that's a big if, but if it is a success economically, then there's going to be more room for other issues to rise. I suspect on the sort of leave voting Brexit or Johnson supporting side, you're going to see the profile of immigration rising, the salience. What we would say is how, lo- how high a priority is immigration? Yes, you want less of it, but as an issue compared to health care and the economy, where does it rank for you? And I think you, you will see a higher ranking if Brexit is an economic success. Because it's gone down from issue number one, two, three to issue number 10 or so, hasn't it, in some of the polling at the moment. You think, what's going to bring it back up? Well, so, so the priority of an issue is determined by a number of things. I mean, one is, is immigration numbers. A second is competing issues. So if you're in an economic recession or Brexit happens, that's dominating the headlines. Immigration is not in the headlines. It's going to drop as a priority. But if... These other issues, particularly Brexit, drops off the headlines. There is a question, what then replaces it as the issue people are talking about? I would suspect that immigration will be an issue that is going to be talked about more if economically Brexit is is fine and people stop talking and worrying about it. 
So in a way, the salience of Brexit has crowded out the salience of immigration. We can see similar dynamics if we look at the EU. Or well, smothered it or fused I it. Think, as I, it, I, yeah, think other things, I think other things have changed the salience. If you, you go back to 2010-11 and two-thirds of the electorate was saying, we don't talk about this enough. I'm not sure we're allowed to talk about it. If you're at the very liberal end of the debate, you'd say, I don't, we've been banging on about it for decades. I don't think that's true. It's much, much harder and people are much less likely to say now we're not allowed to talk about immigration because we had a so referendum that's punctured that was, the concern a bit. Yeah, so it's cathartic in a way, and that it felt powerful to people that whether the prime minister or the treasury thought you should vote one way, they could vote the other way. Once you do that, and you've got the control, you've got a much more pragmatic, granular debate because people want control, selectivity, but they want that's to a, be pragmatic. They're for care homes, but and that's a big part of the job done, as far as you're, uh, you see it. Uh, Yes, it's still polarised politically because the voters that were anti-migration and Labour have drifted to the Conservatives, some of the Conservative Remainers have gone to the Liberal Democrats and so on. But the salience has dropped. And this is very different from America where with Donald Trump tweeting about it and the Democrats very excited about it. Both sides are really, you know, flaming up their groups. There's look, a lot more well, middle There's a lot more middle in Britain. Eric. Most people in Britain are balancers. Most people in Britain see pressures of immigration, gains of immigration, are making distinctions between immigration that they don't have a problem with at all an immigration where it makes a contribution but you want to control it. I, I think there's definitely some truth to what you say in terms of which categories of immigration the voters are keener on and less keen on, but I think even within that um, there is a desire for, for limited numbers that is important and I think it's important electro electorally. Uh, in America, again, it's the Republican side where you have very high um, salience of immigration, much more so than the Democrat side. And, and similarly here, that issue is going to matter a lot more too. Uh, your Leave voter, for example, Johnson voter. I think the, the other thing to bear in mind is that because a lot of Brexit, a lot of Brexit voters think that once you have control, numbers are going to fall. The expectation is that, yes, we have control, but control also means reduced numbers. In some of the um, surveys that I've done, for example, if you tell people that post-Brexit numbers are not going to fall, who are you going to vote for? A lot of the voters, for example, and this was in 2017, a lot of the voters from UKIP that went over to the Conservatives are going to said they would go back to UKIP. And so I suspect there is a very significant and important group of voters who, if after Brexit someone says, hey, look, the numbers haven't come down, the government's in control, but they're admitting these numbers, it's not a real, it's not what we voted for. And we've already seen editorials from the likes of Ian Duncan Smith saying, you know, we're importing a million people every three years and so on. Boris Johnson in the referendum campaign said we're, we're importing the a city the size of Newcastle. But, but Boris Johnson's changed his mind, actually, well, that's during an interesting his time point. in office. So on day one, he says the net migration target's gone. It was quite sensible to ditch it. You've missed it 39 quarters it's in a row. It's not about numbers. It's not credible at all. I'm not going to play a numbers game. And they actually enter the general election campaign saying we will curb low-skilled immigration. It's during the campaign they then say and overall numbers will fall. Now, uh, and if Priti you Patel at, yesterday, yeah, Home Secretary yeah. yesterday was saying numbers yeah. will fall, but, and this couldn't, is what they, but couldn't tell us by, obviously yes. by how much and, and they or don't, when. If you read their manifesto, the policy package won't cut the numbers, it will give you different controls because the immigration it's going to cut out, um, EU low-skilled immigration, has fallen away a lot since the referendum because of the value of the pound and so on. And they are, they are loosening the policy on popular, non-EU, skilled migration. That Their policy is to increase the flows of the immigration that is currently high and to curb the immigration that dropped significantly and since 2016. And employers are going to be allowed to even go first 
abroad yeah. and look abroad for skilled workers and not here. And is that, Eric, something that uh, you think voters will be okay with? Um, where, I suppose it's another way of asking, um, where does the concern about immigration really come from? Well, I mean, what I would say is the academic literature shows pretty clearly that the main driver of immigration tends to be psychological and cultural rather than economic. So late Can we put that in layman's terms? Okay, so, so looking for around example, a community and feeling people don't look like you. Is well, that what you're well, saying? ethnically, ethnic change, yes, ethnic change. Now, it's not. It may not be race. It could be language. It could be religion. <clears throat> but what I would say is, so just as as, as a sample question, I'll, I'll give you a question which says. If you ask Brexit voters, how important an issue for you is pressure on public services? Zero, not important at all. A hundred, extremely important. You get about a 49 or 50 out of a hundred. A moderately important issue. If you just drop two words, immigrants putting pressure on public services, it's up to sort of 70 or 75. So why would, obviously the part of the problem of pressure on public services accounted for by immigration must be smaller than the problem of public services. It makes no sense except if you, ex- if you understand that the, the immigration attitudes are formed before views on public services, and public services then come to be colored by one's views on immigration. So it's not the pressure, per se, on economics or competition for jobs that's driving these attitudes. It's much more about these subtler psychological and cultural uh, drives. And that's one of the reasons why I'm very skeptical of the idea that talking about skills or the economic impacts is really getting at the drivers that are actually shifting politics. But if the people who are coming into the country are blatantly uh, super middle class, better better earners, highly skilled, contributing to the uh, national treasury take and the rest of it through their taxes, and by definition you'd think not putting a pressure on services because they're actually, their, their contributions outweigh the pressure, it, it, are people still going to go with that? Because that seems to be the gamble that Boris Johnson is making. You, you, you say not. Uh, I really don't think they will. I mean, I think they will to some extent. Obviously, yes, if you know, immigrants, by the way, who already generally are contributing more than they're taking away. So I actually, but uh, in even any case, less skilled, I think, less well-paid ones, yes. Yeah, but I think, though, that it's ultimately these material factors are not what drive opinion. And so, for example, I've, I've done another study where we've said, okay, do you, you know, if, if immigration remains the same after Brexit, same levels, or even increases slightly, but the skill mix goes up, um, are you happy with that? And that does reduce opposition to some degree to immigration. But uh, when you introduce, for example, that this is going to bring a faster rate of ethnocultural change, then all of a sudden you get a shift by 20, as much as 20, 25 points in attitudes, because once that framing comes in, it changes people's outlook. So I think, yes, people want skilled compared to unskilled, but within a context in which that cultural change that they're seeking to slow down occurs. So I'm, the question, I can't predict exactly when we're going to start to see this new narrative. It's not necessarily going to be framed in cultural terms because that's very contentious and that can be easily um, labeled as racist. So it's going to be very difficult. There will be a narrative. It might be that we were betrayed and we voted for Brexit and we didn't get the rules. But you think it's coming? You're not convinced. I think it is coming, yeah. Well, let, let, let's see. What, what the real driver was over 15 and 20 years was that the British public lost confidence in whether their governments were competent on the question of immigration, and they had good reasons to lose confidence. You had, you had Labour governments that had no idea at all that the flow of uh, East European migrants was going to come. And then the public feel they were very slow 
to respond to that 2004-2008. You then had a government with David Cameron and Theresa May, and they said, we have got a plan, we will sort that out. Hundreds of thousands out, tens of thousands in, leave it to us. And of course, the opposite happened. So there is good evidence for the public that the politicians have not had a grip and said things that's, they couldn't that's deliver. That's the competence. No, so do you get measure. your concern? And why, why is a point system, an Australian style point system, so incredibly resonant? Everybody has heard of that. It stands for control, it stands for selectivity, and it stands for pragmatism. I Almost everyone it, in this country knows somebody who lives in Australia. I think and it so stands for something else as well. I do remember someone on yeah. the Vote Leave campaign telling me in the Vote Leave yeah. campaign that um, the word association yeah. of Australia yeah. was white country. No, that's, that's inaccurate, I think, because the skills-based preference is across they ethnic groups. That's like they can have that perception, but the skills preference uh, is across ethnic groups. So black and Asian voters will say, we prefer skills, and obviously they won't say, my country doesn't look like my country anymore. And other voters might say, we prefer skills. In the comparative data, uh, the British public has the strongest skills preference of any of any European public. There are some ethno-cultural preferences when we start to think about when we start to think about family migration, flows of asylum. But on the whole, the skills preference seems to be real. And therefore, if you, you split the sample and you offer people Pakistani doctors and Polish doctors and Pakistani plumbers and Polish plumbers, they're, they're being driven a lot by the skill level when they make the choices. So as Eric says, there, there are you know, difficult issues people have about adjusting to change. But if you go and offer them, uh, would you like some ethnic preferences in your immigration policy? They say, that's the last thing we want. We actually have got away from that. We're trying to treat everybody fairly. And the Brexit voters feel their own reputation for fairness is actually at stake if you start saying to them, is it really race you're about? They want to say, no, it really isn't. It's about, it's about integration and pressure on services and you know integration people should join our community and become like us yeah I, I i think we need to as say a social scientist step away from what people say necessarily and look at sort of correlations with attitudes so people might say in the brexit vote say it was about sovereignty but we know the correlation with immigration attitudes is actually the one of the strongest correlations in these no, they will of, say in, it was about know, immigration. They of, will say it's about immigration, but they mean well, they mean okay. control. They don't they don't mean ethnic well, selections. They, they will say in and Australia, I not think just that you Poland. You have to be wary of, of a couple of things. One is social de- desirability. What is a more acceptable yeah. rationale? Right. It's much more acceptable to say it's about pressure on services than it is about cultural change. The other thing is that when you ask a question, compare immigrant one to immigrant two. The only difference is color. That's a different question. Of course, people are going to choose the skilled person. But when you talk about aggregate effects, that this is what's going to be the aggregate shift of immigration, not immigrants, but immigration, that's going to change the so, nature of the answer. There now, two, so I just think, there are two problems oh, with Eric's position, yeah. I think. One is, I had a very interesting experience with this, where Lord Ashcroft had 100 members of the public, and he had me and Migration Watch presenting. And then the final Migration Watch slide was a slide that said, with high immigration by 2050, there won't be a white majority in this country anymore. And it wasn't the liberals in the group that actually pushed back on that. It was the migration sceptics. They said, we've stopped we've delinked it from race, you're making it all about race, don't do that. So Eric might be true that they've got an underlying desire, but if they then say we don't we don't want that. If you wanted an immigration system that preferred white migrants but didn't say it was doing that, you would choose European free movement where nine-tenths of the migrants will be white, but you've got a perfectly good rationale of the single market access and so on. And people didn't want that. They actually wanted a balance between European migration and Commonwealth migration, which is both Australian and Indian. 
I, what I would say is that when you actually even ask Leave voters about levels coming from the EU and, and outside the EU, which in their mind might include, you know, North America, Australia, even though those sources don't actually send any significant numbers, um, you will find actually a slight preference even amongst Leave voters for EU migrants over non-EU. What, what I will say here is that, um, again, you have to get away from what is an acceptable or socially desirable thing to say what's driving opinion. using euphemisms because they don't really uh, yes, want but, 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 to talk about what the, the well, real drivers are. Then you can't offer them that policy then because they'll second. reject it. Well, just a second. You I say, I'll bring you ethnic preferences and say, I don't want them because it's not socially desirable. No, but what they do, but, but the reason that I'm in, well, I would argue the reason that they prefer lower numbers is because of this pace of cultural change. And incidentally, if we do look at countries, I'm Canadian, if you look at Canada, if you look at Australia and New Zealand, um, the immigration issue is actually an important issue there and is, is very much a partisan issue. And again, it's just the narrative is different. It may not be as much about competition for jobs, but it will be about population pressure, housing prices, social cohesion. So it's a different narrative. The other thing to point out is, of course, that the numbers are, are considerably higher in those societies under a point system. Um, so I, I don't know. I, what I would say is I would expect the UK debate to move more in the direction of the Canadian, New Zealand type immigration debate and less in a debate over, say, low-skilled plumbers or something like that. But, but you, you've written a, a book, White Shift, which is uh, talking about what you think, presumably, is for the foreseeable future, an ever-present anxiety amongst white populations in North America, in Europe, that they're going to be outnumbered. Right, so this is the backdrop. This is really the backdrop. Now, what I'm saying is, you know, the solution to that is to sort of start thinking about a transracial, racially mixed majority group. But that takes time, and it takes assimilation. And so the question is, it's a question of speed of assimilation versus speed of immigration. And, and, and yes, ultimately, this is a cultural, predominantly cultural issue and not, uh, in my view, a predominantly economic issue. And in on terms that of basis, the, the, num- the, 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 the this beast, the immigration issue, is going to be with us, according to your definition, uh, f- f- for a very long time. And, and yesterday yes. was an insignificant blip in, it, in the history. Uh, is that I think, it, I think we're it? not in a normal time in the sense that the Brexit debate is elevating concerns over the economy and the, the relationship with the EU. Other things are in the news and, and people's expectations about what's going to happen to immigration post-Brexit are shaped by this idea, once we have control, immigration will be what I think I'd like. If that doesn't materialize, I don't know if it'll materialize. I think we're going to have uh, a different political situation. And I think the Johnson government could be vulnerable to a UKIP or Brexit party style force on its right flank, like we see in continental Europe. Uh, And I think that would change the politics of the UK. Incidentally, I should say that electorates in the West are realigning very much on these cultural issues around national identity, immigration. I don't think Britain is that different. You'd say we'd saw it in the December election. Yeah. I mean, if you compare 2010 and 2019 and you look at the shift in constituencies towards the Conservatives, I mean, these are constituencies that have the Conservative views on immigration that tended to vote leave, etc. I think the answer to the anxieties that Eric is talking about is when you've then got the immigration system that seems to make those choices, is then to say, why don't we have an integration debate as well? Because we've never had an integration strategy in this country. Go back 50 years to Enoch Powell and the Smethwick by-election. What the 
Conservative candidate, very controversial, he's saying, we don't want integration, go away. I don't want those people to live next door to me and be like me. And obviously integration is now a positive thing and people's confidence in integration in Britain, in France, in Austria, in Germany affects their appetite for, for, um, for further immigration. If you feel that people are integrating, then we'll carry on with that. But then if you want the migrants to be able to become us, they're part of your group. I think Britain is a bit different in this populist strand from some of the other continental European countries, because we've had a different race debate over the last two or three generations than they've had in some European countries. Nigel Farage is at the edge of the mainstream in Britain. He's a populist. In the European Parliament, he's got the most multi-ethnic group of any of the party groups, not just among the populist parties, but among the Christian Democrats. And he celebrates that because the British populist party has to observe British race norms in a way that the French National Front probably doesn't have to. And so that's that's quite important. That does challenge one of your points a little, doesn't it? That uh, you're you're saying this is all about white communities uh, feeling threatened, but actually the immigration makeup, the makeup of uh, uh, his group as was in the European Parliament and the vote that went for uh, Brexit, some of it driven by immigration issues. You know there were lots of BME people who were saying they were concerned about immigration as well. Right, so you really have two units of analysis. One is the sort of majority ethnic groups, which is might be the white British, and the other are is the nation, say Britain as a whole, the territorial nation. And you will have ethnic minorities who are attached to Britain, perhaps in its present form, who will also feel that an influx is going to change that. It's not the only concern they have, but part of it is that it's their nation too, which is changing, and they too can respond. Their national identity is affected as well. What I would say is Sanders right that the key to this is integration, but my worry is that we have very, very few successful examples of scalable national integration policies that have worked. I mean, there have been a lot of, lots of discussions for 50 years about these integration policies. There is, what I think actually matters more is assimilation, that is intermarriage and mixing at, at the deep level, which can take a number of generations to actually occur. That is really what lowers the temperature on, on this issue. Well, the mixed-race population in Britain, I mean, I've, I've got Irish and Indian parents, it, it doubled from one sense to the last, it will double again, that's not the only test. You're a, a, heady, a, tenth you're a heady cocktail. Yes, A tenth of relationships in this country are on mixed right. ethnicity, and so that's, again, it's a, it's a different thing, but, you know, we, we've got a mixed record on integration in Britain in different ways, but we're the only country with the level of ethnic minority presence across the political spectrum left and right in the British cabinet Um, you know we've got two Asian chancellors two Asian home secretaries I mean hopefully non-Asian people get the chance to be chancellor and home secretary one day as well you you basically don't think it's the crisis the long crisis that that Eric foresees stretching out in in front of us that gives people confidence there is there is a great deal of uh, social distance and concern about Muslim integration and then there is a great deal of concern among Muslim communities about whether British Muslims are being offered a fair shot, equal opportunity, equal identity, or have to jump extra bars that Hindus and Sikhs don't get to jump. So there's a conversation we need to have about the people we feel most distant from, the people I, we don't know at I all. Can I ask you, Sundar, do you, do you think that... Eric was talking there about how the Tories need to make sure that they're not outflanked on the right on, on this, and that has been very much a governing uh, thought in right-wing parties. Uh, in, in, Angela Merkel had it over in Germany, and I think it's fair to say Theresa May probably uh, had it here. Are you impressed so far by the rhetoric of Boris Johnson? Uh, you say that we need a different agenda talking about assimilation if we're going to talk about uh, immigration. He hasn't, is it fair to say, 
recently used some of the language which you might have expected of a leader who wants to own that bit of t- political terrain and make sure that there's nothing to the right of him. Are you impressed? Do you th- what, what do you think is his direction of travel? Well, he has a self-conception of himself as a moderate, liberal, global-facing people. His opponents will say, why did you say that about letterboxes and so on? And I think he will behave differently as Prime Minister than he did as a columnist and so on. But that, that issue of, you know, he, he's, he's aware that sort of political correctness going too far and not being allowed to say things that people want to hear that he's allowed to say what he says. He's also aware, I think, that we that we observe norms, that the Conservative Party of the Johnson-May-Cameron era is, is, a, is a transformed party because it, it wanted to be open parliamentarily to people from every ethnic background, people from every class background. People said the Conservatives would never do that. They're actually the only European centre-right party that has done that. And that is a point of pride for him. Uh, and, you know, that, that's, that, that's quite important. So I think, I think he has... In his own mind, he, he's, you know, he sees the future of Britain as multi-ethnic, and then you want a confident wave the Union Jack sort of London 2012 Olympics view of that. The left says he isn't there at all, and that actually he's playing some dark agenda. I mean, the proof's, the proof's in the pudding. I and think you say well, darker forces are He's, he's much more likely anyway. to go for judges and lawyers than he is to go for sort of race issues. I do think, I do think there is a difference between the Johnson strand of the Brexit movement, which I think is actually relatively narrow in terms of... If we look at the Brexit voting base, I think it's, it's quite different from the outlook of the sort of libertarian global Britain type um, who, who tend to be in the elite of the movement. And the real question is whether that contradiction can be maintained as we go forward. Uh, I'm not sure without strong pressure on the Brexit issue that that, can, that contradiction can be maintained. I think right now the, the base is giving him, um, give, cutting him slack because you know, he's fighting for Britain and getting, wants to get a good deal for Britain. I would think it would, might, it would be a, a different uh, landscape once that deal has been inked, if Brexit is an economic uh, success. I just, I think that, you know, you can look at, certainly there's been assimilation and mixing, particularly with the Afro-Caribbean community, but I, I think the way these things play out tends to take a long time. And if you look at the American example, if you take the Catholic, large-scale Catholic wave of immigration to the United States, I mean, it actually took from the late 19th century right through till John F. Kennedy's election, a little bit later, for that group to become completely assimilated into American life and and concerns over immigration to really, really abate. I'm just skeptical that in, yes, we have plenty of examples of very well integrated, economically integrated minorities, and that's fantastic and that's to the good, but I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is this deeper ethno-cultural assimilation, and it's question of how diverse how much diversity and how fa- how rapidly are things changing? Eric, as you're a demographer, yeah. can, I, can I ask you as, as an economic question with a big sweep of history? Can we afford not to have the sort of migration that we now look like we're stopping, given the demographics of this country, um, other countries as well? Um, I think so. I mean, I think ultimately it's you know democratically. It's, it's up to the population to decide democratically. If they go for a lower migration option and the economy really is damaged, a debate can occur and people can say, okay, let's increase the numbers. I don't think, though, that the issue that immigration can address the aging problem, that's, that's just not demographically the case. In the sense that I think the EU did a report, you would have to bring in sort of tens of millions of people to keep the age structure the way it is. Um, 
because immigrants come in and they age too, and therefore it's kind of like a house of cards. All you're doing is delaying the inevitable. The, the solution ultimately is to get, you know, it has to do with the retirement age. Groups that are not represented in the workforce need to be in the workforce. Immigration think, is just not a solution. I think there's the another way that the, the demographic cleavage, which is real, different approach to demographic change, is misunderstood. It's perceived as an argument between the 80% white majority and the 15, 20% ethnic minorities. It's actually a big split among the white population, with a third of the white population, the younger group, the graduates, having no interest at all in a sort of white ethnic identity and being celebratory of diversity, a third of the white group really having these very strong anxieties about the pace of change, and a large part of the white group and the majority of the ethnic minority group in the middle with this balanced view, yes, the pace of change is high. If we worked hard on integration, let's have people become citizens, let's celebrate the monarchy and the NHS and so on, but a large part of the group will go with that. Another part of the group will never go with that and you get some very dark stuff on the ends of the internet. If you're thinking politically, you're not going to chase that group which is shrinking, without also thinking, well, we've got an intergenerational divide, we've got a growing number of graduates, we've got a fifth of first-time voters who are ethnic minorities. And so having built this one-off coalition for Brexit, Boris Johnson is then thinking, can I ever get the children of Tory voters in the south of England? Can I ever get those uh, Asian and black voters who are paying the top rate of tax, or are they going to be offside? And the Trump party has taken one route, which is to go there. The Canadian Conservatives have taken another route. If you're the British Conservatives, I think you're going to want a multi-ethnic voting coalition that that reaches and bridges those groups. I I think that might be the case down the road, but I don't think that future has arrived. I think you're right that that amongst the young population and amongst the university-educated population, there is a more liberal attitude, a more pro-diversity attitude, but it is only a tendency. So there's still a significant uh, restrictionist group within the young, within the university educated. So I think it's not not right to see those groups as monolithic either. And, and likewise, with ethnic minorities, there's a significant restrictionist group, as we see with, say, particularly Latino and Asian Trump voters who are also very restrictionist on immigration. So this is, you're right that, that there's change demographically coming, uh, and perhaps the median voter will be a bit different in the future. But certainly for the foreseeable next few elections, uh, that calculus is unlikely to play. Dominic Cummings once articulated what he hoped to achieve in this country um, as avoiding what he, he thinks Europe's going to collapse under the pressures of its internal contradictions, the, not least uh, the fact that it has an awful lot of uh, migrants coming into it who can then uh, move around uh, freely inside, upsetting a lot of the voters that you're talking about, uh, Eric, in your book. He thinks that Brexit will lance that boil here and allow Britain to actually maintain some moderation uh, in the great scheme of uh, uh, history. And a grateful nation will no doubt carry him shoulder high uh, through the streets at the end of this experiment. Does any of that sort of ring true, that maybe something has been lanced by Brexit, salience of immigration has come down, you say, that this approach that they're talking about this week does address those issues, that Dominic Cummings may be on this one, right. He's a very effective political campaigner. Uh, Take back control, um, get Brexit done. These are very resonant slogans. What you didn't have after the referendum in those frustrating three years, you then didn't have a government with the mandates to it. You've now got to vote leave governments. They've also got to deliver the trade deals that go with that, the immigration policy that goes with that. Can you govern and remain populist? I think there were two very different voices in the leave campaign. You had these rather moderate Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, Gisela Stewart sort of, it's about control, it's about points, it's about being welcoming, we can lance the boil. You also had on the internet pushed very hard this message about Turkey 
watch out for Turkey, watch out for the Turks, which obviously is the opposite of the position and the of Boris Johnson. Yeah. And then you, you, know, you, you sometimes just combine those two messages because there are these different audiences. Can a government do that? You know, have different voices for different audiences, or does it have to level on what it's Oops. going to do? So I, I think, I think you know, it's, it's easy, to, it's easier to campaign, and you know, the other side of the argument was rather bad at communicating with the public. But but you've now got to take responsibility. It's not just a blame game. You had a hung parliament, so you weren't in charge. Now you'll say it's the judges are not and in charge. And how do you assess them so far in that, on, on that measure? Well, I, I think I think it's very it's very early days. I think there's been a lot of overexcitement about the immigration reforms yesterday. I think the government said this is really tough. There'll be no low skilled immigration. Business said much the same thing. It's actually it's it's a much more sensible policy than they had in the white paper because previously there was going to be thirty thousand as a cut off, and then um, if you're on a twenty thousand job, come for twelve months and go away again. You've actually if you're on twenty five thousand, twenty thousand, you'll actually be able to get roots if you're a nursery teacher, a school assistant, and so on. You'll be able to get routes to settlement and citizenships. That's a better that's a better policy. There'll be a lot of pragmatism, a lot of devil in the detail here. Whether you can sell that to the voters who voted for control, but control is about what do you want then? And people are quite torn. They want less immigration, but they want houses built and they want care homes staffed. And so it's quite it's quite it gets more difficult, it gets more granular, and that's what takes the heat out of the debate. Bre- Bre- Brexit happened, Eric, before Trump was elected. We were the we were early adopters, the country that was supposed to be forever stable. Uh, we we, we seem to sort of make what was labelled by some a populist move at that time. Is it possible we're first in, first out, and that maybe it has lanced the boil? I don't think so. I think because this is ultimately a structural thing, and I think we're only entering into a new phase where cultural politics is going to have a higher profile, simply because of these demographic shifts and unanswered questions about... Who are we, right? These questions. Um, I do think Brexit did play a role, though, in deflecting some of that sentiment into what you might think of as more civic nationalism, worried about politics and economics rather than cultural and ethnicity. So in that sense, yes, Brexit did deflect, but I don't think it can do that job once it's off the political agenda. Once it's off the agenda, we're into a new landscape, and I think that landscape will be less kind to a Johnson-style political globalizing Brexit. And I think that's when, you know, I I think that's when we might see a more continental style narrative emerging. How it emerges, I I can't say for sure. But I would have thought that that all other things being equal, we might expect it given what's going on in other... A more brazen populist... Well, it may not be brazen. It may not be explicit. It, It may still use the language of... It might use the language of population pressure or we're importing a million people every three years or whatever it is. A lot will depend, first of all, on what is the migration level, what's going on with the economy, is Brexit really off the table in terms of a, of a, of a talking point. Whereas if the government can pose as a defender of Brexit against the EU, that can deflect this sentiment. But once that structural narrative is gone then I think that's when we, we are more likely to see this, new, this kind of population. This is the great, this the great challenge of politics in an era of polarisation and populism. It's really easy to have a 10% or a 15% project. If you just want to speak to the London Metropolitans and the graduate group about what a tragedy all of this is, if you just want to speak to the hardest end of the Brexit vote, you don't do any compromising. It's really hard to have a governing project where you're looking for 40 or 50%. That's the challenge for Keir Starmer, Lisa Nandy, you know, 
can the cities and towns vote for the same Labour government? It's exactly the same challenge for Boris Johnson. Can Boris Johnson, who wants to go to the global conferences as the mayor of London, who believes in openness and wants to represent and deliver for Blythe Valley? It's about the cultural and social distance in our country between Kensington and Mansfield and Halifax and Hampstead and so on. But these are not different planets. Both of these places are voting for Conservative parties and Labour parties. And in some countries, you will see, you know, eight parties on 10% each, and then you've got to have a negotiation. So in Britain, the, the job is the job is to be a bridger. Is Boris Johnson going to be a better bridger than Keir Starmer, Lisa and Andy, whoever the Labour Party put up? But those projects you're talking about that might take away some of his votes, they're never going to govern the country. A sort of hyper-cosmopolitan agenda is never going to govern the country, but it can it can take away votes that a governing party needs. The only thing I would say, I, I agree with you, but I guess the issue is Johnson's coalition now includes a very significant number of Brexit voting or immigration skeptic voters who are working class. What we seem to have seen, and we also saw it in the Trump vote, is that people who are skeptical about immigration um, but are economically on the left seem to be more willing to go over to to the right than those who are economically well off but relatively cosmopolitan. So in that trade-off, it seems as though the sort of more skeptical of immigration policy seems to win out. So my, and and I guess just looking at the the Johnson conservatives, if their new voters are at risk of of leaving to a new formation, and don't forget, Brexit Party, UKIP, these these have popped up very quickly. Voters are quite willing to to drop the old loyalties and go to new ones. Eric Sunder, thank you very much indeed for sharing your thoughts. Thanks very much. Very grateful. For the government, it's an historic moment that marks the end of the free movement of people. From January the 1st, 2021, a new immigration system based on qualifications and earnings will operate in the UK. Under the plans, workers who don't have the equivalent of A-levels or Scottish hires will no longer get visas. A salary threshold for workers wanting to come to the UK would be set at £25,600. But professions facing a shortage of workers, such as nursing will be allowed in on a lower figure of just over 20,000. And a scheme to bring in seasonal agriculture workers will be expanded. The Home Secretary says the changes will boost the economy and attract the brightest and best. Our political editor, Gary Gibbon, reports. Is it not time we took back control of our immigration policy? We add a population the size of Newcastle every year. Concern about immigration helped to deliver a victory to the Leave campaign. Britain's out, the government wants voters to feel their message in the referendum is being acted on. Yes, we will bring overall numbers down by reducing the number of people with low skills coming to the United Kingdom. So skilled workers above a pay floor can come to the country if they've got a promise of a job, but those classified as unskilled can't. Put up your hands if you voted for Brexit, you voted to leave. A cafe in Stratford-upon-Avon this morning. Do they like the sound of what the government is announcing? I think we've got to try it. And then, if it doesn't work, maybe let some people in. But we should be more like Australia, 
where you have to speak English and have a job and you can't get benefits you can't get benefits we have people in our own country who need jobs and their jobs there for them and they should use our people serving them young Bulgarians who aren't convinced the local workforce will step in to serve I don't think the English people they would like to uh, work this job well, we, we are working in a Greek restaurant and most of us, actually all of us, we are foreigners and there is no British people who wants to work this. Are you taking English, British people's jobs? I wouldn't say so, no. I don't think so. There are lots of jobs. The hospitality industry was joined by other sectors, including social care and construction, pleading with the government to relax its planned rules, or at least give them more time to adapt beyond the end-of-the-year deadline. Thank you. If you take the care sector, for example, there are 100,000 vacancies right now as we speak. So how the care sector is going to be able to recruit the people that they need um, as quickly um, as is going to be required is going to be challenging. We want to be able to build bridges and roads and, and railways, and there's an infrastructure revolution that we need. Well, we we have an aging population who we'll need care workers. Well, I think that is the, the, the conversation that we need to have with You're government. Sure. It's the conversation that we need to have. This looks exciting. The Home Secretary suggested that conversation wasn't necessary. If those employers recruit from the millions of Britons not in work and not seeking work. There are 8.45 million British people in the United Kingdom that are economically inactive across the country in different parts so of the, the country. So the message is get on your bike, is well, it? Well, the message is we will be working with businesses and employers to invest in people and in skills. But the government's own numbers suggest of those 8.5 million, a big chunk are students. Many others are sick. Many also looking after their families. Others are retired, making the pool of what the government's statisticians call discouraged workers actually 33,000. By the Thames, these were once the offices of the Leave campaign, where some would say this all started. You were working in that building over there, yeah. the Vote Leave headquarters. This is the culmination of something that started there and the build-up to the referendum, a card played in the referendum, and immigration is now neutralised as an issue, you think? To a large degree, I think yes. But we saw that people don't actually might aren't focused solely on numbers. You know, the old hundreds of thousands figure that we saw trotted out, and in, in a time when we actually couldn't even control that, the focus was more on control. And today's announcement by the government delivers exactly that. This is not the end of the debate over immigration. Ultimately, it was about numbers more than anything else. And I'm, I'm just not sure uh, that, that a year down the line, two years down the line that anything with that is actually going to change. Some industries still hope the government could show flexibility and loosen immigration controls over time. The government insists there's no need to do that. Employers must recruit and train better and pay more. Well, joining me now from Westminster, the Conservative MP John Redwood. And in studio, in the studio, we have the economist Faisal Shaheen, who stood for Labour but lost in the last election and is director of the left-wing think tank Class, Faisal Shaheen, this is what people voted for. 
Well, it is certainly a policy that isn't driven by evidence or economic need or society or a history of emigration as well as immigration. So you have to wonder where it comes from. And I think it is driven um, by xenophobia. And we see it in the context of a government that has come in that has said voted against child refugees being able to be united with their families. You know, we've seen this week that they hired someone that was into eugenics. You know, they keep sending out this message of xenophobia. And um, when you look at the facts alongside what they're doing, it just doesn't go together. You know, if you think about what this is meant to solve, it doesn't solve low wages. But what's wrong with putting those eight and a half million people who are currently being old, being sick, looking after members of their family to work. I mean, because they're doing other things, right? They're sick. Uh, They're caring for people. Um, And, you know, it's a nonsense number, really, when you look at it. Um, And, you know, again, if you want to do something about wages, if you want to do something about jobs, you don't focus on immigration. You have to deal with the issues in the labour market that are more about trade unions and the impact of the crash and austerity. So, John, why do you think these eight and a half million people who Priti Patel talked about today are suddenly going to start applying for jobs that they don't currently apply for? What I welcome about today is is the vision of of a better paid, more productive workforce. And it's mainly about getting people better paid because they're more skilled and they're supported by better investment in the care home or in the office or or in the factory or wherever it is. So you think care workers will be paid more? Isn't that a great... Yes, of course I want care workers to be paid more. Uh, And it has to be paid for out of productivity gains, higher quality work, um, more training, more support for them, and above all, more investment uh, in equipment and computers and so forth that can assist them in their tasks. We've got a great modern vision for a better society in which people have better, more rewarding jobs that are better paid, and we're trying to lead the employers with us. We don't like this model. Uh, where they don't mechanise, they don't put the support behind their workers, they don't invest in but the how workforce, can you mechanize which the bad employers the fail to do. I mean, a lot, uh, a lot of it's to do to... with cleaning them, isn't it? And, <sighs> and doing simple tasks like that that can't be done by a robot. Well, uh, the, the basic care is a very skilled job uh, and it needs to be properly rewarded. Uh, but there are all sorts of aids to cleaning and transporting and handling and so forth where you do need decent equipment And you certainly need very good information systems to know what the needs of an individual is and that can make the the care worker more effective and provide a better quality of care. Because it's not just about cost, it's about quality above all else. The best businesses businesses invest in both their people and in their technology because what it should be driven by is a passion to have higher quality care in the care home or higher quality service in the office or whatever it is. We've had the Conservatives in government for 10 years and it's been in their gift to pay higher wages for care workers. It's been in their gift to invest in nurses' bursaries, for 